Acts chapter 7, Acts chapter 7, and I'm not going to read this entire chapter to you. Actually, I'm going to start reading in Acts chapter 8, um, and I'm going to read from Acts chapter 8, verse 8, to Acts chapter 7, verse 2. Actually, Acts chapter 6, sorry. Acts chapter, you guys thought, he's going to read backwards this morning. <laughs> he is, it's a, it's a talent I have, I turn the Bible upside, all right. It's how I come up with the interesting interpretations. Okay, Acts chapter 6 and verse 8, sorry, Acts chapter 7 and verse 1, that's what we'll read to, verse 2. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people, Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and the Cyrenes, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, are these things so? Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we look at your word this morning, as we see this confrontation of Stephen and begin to discuss this sermon that he preached this sermon that scans all of biblical history, the history of Israel, and points them to the fact that the fulfillment of the dwelling place of God is in Christ. The fulfillment of the law is Christ. As we look at this, Father, we pray that you give us clarity of thought, understanding that you would transform our own hearts and minds to trust in your Son evermore, to be increasingly thankful for your Word, to be thankful for even the clarity of Stephen as he stands boldly and preaches your Word, preaching it to an audience that is seemingly bent on misunderstanding him, that is determined beforehand that they do not like his message, and that determines to kill him for preaching with clarity the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May you help us understand the accusations that are brought against Stephen, why those accusations would have been brought, and what Stephen's reply is to them. We pray this so that your son may be more clear in our lives, in our hearts and minds. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's amazing, it's amazing how easy it is to misunderstand people when we do not want to hear them. 
or how easy it is to be misunderstood when people don't want to hear us. I mean, it's, it's easy to misunderstand people when you do want to hear them, isn't it? Or for them to misunderstand you when they do want to hear you, but, but it's even easier to misunderstand when you want to misunderstand. You say, what do I mean by that? Well, there are often reasons we don't understand each other, you know, because communication is just tough. It's difficult. It's not easy. There can be language and cultural barriers that make communication difficult. And, and sometimes the medium itself can make communication difficult. So social media, texting, emails, these things can make communication difficult because you don't hear tone, you don't see body language, you don't know what's on the other side, and you begin to um, respond to that. And, you know, in our culture, you become like people are the tone police. I didn't like your tone. Well, there was no tone. It was an email. I didn't put it in all caps, right? It's just, it's just, it's just writing. I don't like your tone. So we, we understand it's difficult to communicate. But what really makes communication difficult is when you do not want to hear the person speaking to you. That's what really makes communication difficult. When your sinful heart has determined in advance what this person is really about and you just don't want to hear what they're actually saying. Uh, we, we see this in, in counseling married couples all the time, particularly in the contrast of counseling premarital couples and then counseling married couples. The contrast is, is amazing. In premarital counseling, I've, I've sat with couples and I've, I've had the privilege of being pastoral ministry long enough where I've sat it with couples in premarital counseling and then later after they're married, right? When they're actually married. And, and in premarital counseling, every stupid thing their fiance says is wonderful and marvelous. Oh, they have like goggles on, right? It's just, oh, they're amazing. And I'm thinking, oh, that's, that's going to be a problem. It's going to be a problem. Just wait. And then you get into marital counseling. They're having problems. And then every stupid thing the spouse says is just that, stupid. It's probably an intentional attack. And even the good stuff the spouse says is probably an intentional attack. And by the way, this is precisely why when people say the biggest problem in marriage is communication, I can agree with that if if we add the caveat that communication is a struggle because at the root is a sinful person hearing what they want to hear. This can be particularly true when you lead, can't it? You speak up, and no matter what you say, people who despise you, people who despise what you stand for, they hear the worst no matter what you say. They despise for what, what you stand for, and therefore they twist your words to say stuff you never intended them to say, or you never intended to say. Then they take their twisted views, and they gossip about them to everyone who cares to listen. That's, that's just the reality. This was the reality for the prophets in the Old Testament. It was the reality for John the Baptist, it was a reality for Jesus. It was a reality for the apostles. And this is Stephen's reality. Stephen is the first martyr of the church. 
and this is his reality. He was being accused of saying what he was not. His words were being twisted to communicate something different than he intended. And this was happening because of the hard hearts and the pride of his audience. Now Stephen preached a sermon in which he attempted, Stephen attempts to clarify his position, but that sermon, rather than winning over the crowd, leads to him being martyred by the crowd. And it did so because the crowd's sin, I want you to hear this, the crowd's sin led them to hear what they wanted to hear. So today we'll look at the accusations against Stephen and the reply of Stephen. Those two things, the accusations against him and his reply. We're going to look first at what the religious leaders were accusing him of. What were they saying that Stephen was actually teaching? And second, we're going to look at his response or his reply, clarifying what he's actually saying or teaching. Now, we're going to then walk through this sermon over the next several weeks. So today, I'm just going to set the table for the accusation and essentially his response. And then over the next several weeks, we're going to break it down because what Stephen does is he, he gives his answer by going through the whole history of Israel briefly. And so most of us are not wildly familiar with the whole history of Israel, i.e. our Old Testaments. And so what we're going to do is take some time to break down each of those stories that Stephen tells to help you understand his overall argument. All of which, by the way, leads to the Christ. So it's great to be doing this during the Advent season, isn't it? Going to the Old Testament, pointing to Christ. So let's, let's look first at the accusation against Stephen the accusations against Stephen. Look at verse 11 of chapter 6. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. So they're debating with Stephen. They can't withstand his wisdom because it's spiritually given wisdom. And they begin to um, say, well, what we're going to do is instigate people to speak against him, to gossip about him. We're going to form a campaign against him. We're going, to, we're going to call our friends and neighbors and get them, if you will, to write letters and, and to make accusations. And, you know, this is the kind of thing that happens. And so that's what they're doing. They're, they're instigating people secretly to make charges. And the two charges are what? That he is speaking something. They're both charges against Stephen's speech. They're not charging him for healing people. They're charging him for what he says. And what are they, the things they're charging him on what he says? That he has spoken blasphemous words against Moses and against the Lord, or Yahweh, God. That he's blasphemed the Mosaic Covenant and that he's blasphemed the Lord. Really, it's one big critique that he's blasphemed Israel's God. But look at what they go down to say. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. So they bring him before the Sanhedrin. And they set up false witnesses. These are people who are intentionally coming to lie. They, they stand in front of a, of a legal council, a religious council, and intentionally lie. This kind of stuff happens. 
People actually intentionally set people up. They bear false witness. That's why it's, it's happened so frequently that we have a commandment with regard to it. Do not bear false witness against your neighbor. And they set up to do this. And look at what they said. Again, the charge. This man, talking about Stephen, never ceases to speak words, again, about his speech. This isn't about any of Stephen's actions. This is about Stephen's ideology. This is about what Stephen preaches and teaches. He never ceases to speak words against this holy place, that's the temple, in Jerusalem, on the Temple Mount, and the law. That's the Mosaic Covenant. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth, this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, the temple, and will change the customs of Moses that Moses delivered to us, the Mosaic Covenant. In other words, saying that he's speaking against the place where God dwells. See, God's Shekinah glory dwells in the Holy of Holy in the temples. That's where he dwells. And he's speaking against where God dwells, his house, and he's speaking against God's Mosaic Covenant, God's law, God's word. And they say in Acts 6.14 that he's doing so by claiming that Jesus, what, the way in which he's speaking against the law and the temple is by saying that Jesus, will, Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the temple and change the customs of the law. That's the charge. They are hearing Stephen say something about the law of Moses. They're hearing him say something about the temple. And it sounds to them like an attack on what is most central to Israel's worship. You understand that? The temple is central to Israel's worship. The Mosaic Covenant, the law, the customs, etc., are central to Israel's worship. And they hear Stephen saying that somehow Jesus of Nazareth is destroying all that. Israel is a people that for generations has worshipped at the temple and has been under the law. Israel has no way in their minds, and I think rightly, to relate to Yahweh apart from the law of Moses delivered, and no place to worship Yahweh apart from the temple. That's, how they've, that's the conclusion they've come to. Now what Stephen is teaching is seeming to be blaspheming all that. What they're doing is they're accusing Stephen of blaspheming, blaspheming the way Moses revealed to Israel to, to relate to Yahweh and the place Moses commanded Israel to build to worship Yahweh. How could he be anything? See, that's the nature of the accusation. How could he be anything but a false prophet if he's denying God's dwelling place and God's word? You hear the charge? He's a false prophet. And what do we do with false prophets? We stone them. Now, not in contemporary America. Don't get afraid if you're a visitor. <laughs> we don't. Israel does. <laughs> right? I know I can see it in the paper now. Chad Vegas' church stones false prophets. No. No. <laughs> Israel stoned false prophets. That's what they did. In fact, we know they're accusing him of being a false prophet and, and that they're, they're because of the nature of not only what they're saying, but what they do. What do they do to Stephen? They take him out and stone him to death. 
And their thought is, how could he be anything but a false prophet if he's denying God's dwelling place, the temple, and he's denying God's law or God's word, the Mosaic Covenant? And even worse, Stephen is, even worse, Stephen is saying that Jesus of Nazareth, in their minds, a mere man, the one we crucified not many months ago, that he'll destroy the temple and he'll change the law. How will we relate to Yahweh if the law is undermined and the temple destroyed? These are pretty serious accusations, are they not? Now Luke tells us in verse 13 that they set up false witnesses, right? They set up false witnesses. That these men are set up, they're secretly instigated to lie about what Stephen's saying. So we know that Stephen is not claiming exactly what they're accusing him of. He is not blaspheming Yahweh. He is not speaking against Moses and against God. He is not denigrating the temple where God dwelt, nor the law under which Israel long lived in covenant with Yahweh. He's not doing those things. But we do know it is true that Stephen is likely preaching that in some way Jesus changes everything. In some way Jesus undoes the need for the temple and for the Mosaic Covenant. We know this because Jesus has said things to indicate this. Jesus said, for example, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And when they're fulfilled, something has changed, hasn't it? So Jesus taught he fulfilled the law, and Stephen was likely preaching this. Jesus also said in John 4 to the woman at the well that there is an hour coming and an hour that is now here. That hour is now here when the true worshipers will no longer worship the Father in Jerusalem, but will worship in spirit and in truth. In other words, you're not going to go to this mountain in Jerusalem anymore to worship. That's something he's, Stephen is likely preaching with regard to the temple. So with regard to the temple, here's what I think Stephen was likely preaching. Stephen was likely preaching that the temple was a temporary place of worship, never intended to be the place Yahweh dwells, for no building made with human hands can contain him. And how do I know that? Because Stephen actually quotes, he actually quotes Isaiah here. Look at chapter 7 and verse 49. The prophet says, heaven, sorry, this is from Psalms, I believe, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? So you have a citation from Isaiah with some language picked up from the Psalms in which he's saying, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build with me, for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my, my hand make all these things? In other words, I'm the Lord of all creation. You can't pin me into a little building. And Stephen seems to be pointing this out, that, that the temple was always temporary as a place of worship. It was never intended to be the place where Yahweh dwells. In fact, look at Hebrews um, chapter 
8. Look at Hebrews chapter 8. This will be made clear here. And verse 1. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, that being Jesus, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in holy places, in the true tent, as opposed to the tent of, the me- of meeting, or the tabernacle, or the temple, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. You hear the comparison? For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it's necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve. The Mosaic priesthood served as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. You see, this was just always a copy. It was always a shadow. It was always pointing you to heavenly realities. He was instructed by God saying, see, when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. In other words, Moses said, here's the instructions for building the tabernacle. This is a pattern shown you on the mountain, but it's a pattern of what? The true tent, the true tabernacle where God dwells in heaven. It's a picture It's a shadow, it's a type. And I think what Stephen's probably preaching is that Jesus is the true temple. That this temple was temporary. It was a sign, a symbol, a type, a shadow pointing to the substance, the reality, the true thing, who is Christ. With regard to the Mosaic Mosaic Law Covenant, Stephen was likely preaching that the Mosaic Law was a temporary covenant between God and Israel. In other words, not only was he saying the temple was temporary, he was likely saying that the Mosaic Law was a temporary covenant between God and Israel, never intended to be the permanent way by which Yahweh relates to them. Yes, a temporary way, but never the permanent way by which Yahweh relates to them, but simply a pedagogue, like a person who takes care of the household children as they're growing up and keeps them in line until they become heirs. A pedagogue never intended to be the permanent way. Something that was good but not sufficient. Something that was important for a time but temporary. Something that was meaningful but always as a type pointing forward to fulfillment in Jesus. In fact, I think Stephen was teaching this on good authority because Paul taught this. Look at Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, about the Mosaic Law Covenant. Paul talks it being added atop of the Abrahamic Covenant. And then in verse 19, the question is, why then the law? Because it didn't annul Abraham's covenant. It was added on to Abraham's covenant. So why, why did we get it? And it says this. Why then the law, verse 19 of Galatians 3, it was added because of transgressions, Until the offspring, by the way, that offspring is the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, Christ, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Stephen picks up on this language, by the way, of the law being put in place by angels. You'll see that at the end of Acts 7. He picks up on that same language. In other words, 
What Paul's saying is, God added the covenant with Moses, this law covenant with Moses, as a temporary measure until the Christ comes. Because of your sin. To keep you in line. To keep showing you your need of the Messiah. Look what it says in verse 21 of Galatians 3. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin. It's talking about this idea that the Mosaic law imprisons the people under sin. Why? So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, in other words, before Jesus came, we were held captive under the law imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian, our pedagogue, our tutor, until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Messiah Jesus, you're all sons of God through faith. You see this? The law has a, was a temporary measure. The Mosaic comes a temporary measure that is then fulfilled by Christ now that the Son has come. Now that the one to whom it pointed has come, He's now fulfilled it. He's here. And so it goes away. The Mosaic Covenant's abrogated. It's not that Stephen opposed the Mosaic Covenant. It's not that he negated the Mosaic Covenant. It's that Stephen is telling Israel, you never properly understood the Mosaic Covenant. You fell in love with the shadow rather than the substance who is Christ. You know, imagine a child, and there's his father standing there, and, and he's cast outside, and the child sees his father casting a shadow. And he looks down at the shadow, and he, and he starts to try to hug the shadow and talk to the shadow. How silly would that be? All the shadow does is points him back to the substance and essentially what Israel is doing is the, the substance has come. The son who is the heir of all the promises. The seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham has come. And they're still in love with the shadow. The temple and the Mosaic Covenant are shadows. And Christ is the substance. That's what Stephen's preaching. He's not blaspheming these things. He's pointing them to the true intention of them. In other words, what they're doing is they're hearing Stephen preach the new covenant. They're hearing him preach that Moses' law and temple were not the final word of God. The law of Moses was not the final word of God. And the temple was not the ultimate dwelling place of God. That instead, Jesus is the final word of God. The word made flesh. And Jesus is the dwelling place place of God, the Word became flesh and tabernacled, dwelt among us. So Stephen is not denigrating Moses in the temple. Rather, he is saying that they had their place, albeit temporary. And he's upholding them in their full and glorious fulfillment in Christ. Yet the ears of Stephen's audience, the ears of his audience are deaf to the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah. They're deaf to it. They're 
Their eyes are blind. Their hearts are wicked. They are spiritually dead. As Stephen will accuse them of being in a bit, they are stiff-necked. And so they are dishonestly claiming They are dishonestly claiming that Stephen is denigrating the law in the temple. They're saying that Stephen is blaspheming Moses and God. He is undermining the law and the place of God's worship. That's what they're claiming. So what's Stephen's reply? What's Stephen's reply? This is the second point I want to get. There's the accusation. They're misunderstanding his teaching about Jesus with regard to the Mosaic Covenant. And so they accuse him of blaspheming the law in the temple. And then he replies. What's his reply? That reply comes in Acts chapter 7, verse 1 through 53. Now you're going, are you going to cover all 53 verses? You basically covered just like four. No, right? This is, we're going to walk through this whole series, but I want to give you a basic understanding of his reply. Look at Acts 7 and verse 1. And the high priest said, are these things so? It's, in other words, these two charges have been made against him. He's blaspheming the law. He's blaspheming the temple. And the high priest says to him, are these charges true? It's, it's a little bit like saying, how do you plead? Guilty or not guilty? Are these things so? And Stephen said, and then he begins to answer. Brothers and fathers, hear me. He, he speaks of them really in a way that is honoring them in spite of what they're doing to him. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham, and so you see him jump all the way back in the history of Israel to Abraham. Now the reply Stephen deals, in the reply that Stephen gives, he deals with really the two major themes that correspond to the two charges against Stephen. You can't understand Acts 7 if you don't understand that he has two charges brought against him, and he's answering those two charges. I have read scholars who basically say Acts 7 is a long, meandering, boring retelling of Israel's history. They said that Stephen just kind of is boring, and he's just meandering about, and it seems nonsensical and doesn't seem to connect in any way, and what does this have to do with anything he's being charged of? And I, I wonder to myself as I'm reading them, did they read this text? Or are they like Stephen's audience, stiff-necked, deaf, and blind? That's my guess. And Stephen really is very specifically, and I think brilliantly, answering the two charges brought against him. One, he's answering that God does dwell with Israel, has and is now in Christ. Two, he says that God's law has been given to them and has been fulfilled. He's dealing with these two charges. Does God dwell with Israel? Did he dwell with Israel? And and is God's law given to them? And Stephen's going to take go through the history of Israel and he's going to show two things that are a bit surprising. One, he's going to say show them that God has never, God has never been confined to dwelling with them in a building. 
In other words, what he's going to drive at is God has never been confined. If you think because you have a tabernacle, if you think because God brought you to this holy land, this place, Jerusalem, if you think that that means that God has somehow been confined to this city or this temple, this building, then you have missed the Old Testament story. God has never been confined to that. That has always been a sign or a symbol for your good, pointing you to his dwelling with you in the Messiah. The second thing he says is God's law is something that Israel has always disobeyed. You want to talk about blaspheming God's law? In other words, Stephen turns it on his head and says, you are the ones who have always disobeyed and your disobedience continues even now. So as we move through the sermon of Stephen over the next several weeks, I want you to see clearly that Stephen is not denigrating the law or the temple. Stephen is rather turning the charges on their head. And he's saying that, here's what he's saying, I'm upholding the true intent of the law and the temple. While Israel, you, are blaspheming the law and the temple, as you always have. Think about that. That'll get you killed, won't it? Stephen is claiming that by rejecting Jesus, the Messiah, Israel is rejecting the true temple and the one to whom Moses' law pointed and in whom Moses' law was fulfilled. In other words, what Stephen is doing as he goes over the history of Israel is he's saying to them, you're accusing me of blaspheming Moses and God. You're the ones blaspheming them because you're stiff-necked, disobedient people. Your fathers were and so are you. And the reply to that is, they stone him to death. Any surprise? Stephen does this by walking through the history of God's dealing with Israel. He begins with Abraham, then he moves to Joseph, then Moses, then David and Solomon, and finally the Christ. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to go through Abraham, Joseph, Moses, David and Solomon, and finally the Christ. And we will take each of those periods in turn over the coming weeks. But I want you to get a small taste of that by way of overview before we really turn to the first major period of Israel's history and Stephen's argument. Because we'll turn to Abraham next week. Maybe Abraham and Joseph, but definitely Abraham. And I want you to see how in the overall sermon, in the overall sermon, Stephen is saying that Israel has never properly understood God's dwelling with them, nor have they ever properly obeyed God's law. I want you to hear that just as a first glance. So let's look first at God's dwelling with them. That, that charge, they've never understood it. Look at verse 2. And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. In other words, just briefly, and we'll pick up on this next week, God was with Abraham while in a pagan land. God didn't wait for Abraham to get to Canaan, the promised land, nor to Jerusalem, nor to have a temple or a tent of meeting in order to dwell with Abraham. God was with Abraham even when Abraham was in a pagan land, Mesopotamia, or of the Chaldees. God is with Abraham in Haran, he goes on to say. Now look at verse 9 when he picks up Joseph. And the patriarchs, these are the sons of Abraham, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But what does it say? But God was what? With him. See, God dwelled with them, even in Egypt. 
even in a pagan land. God didn't just dwell with Joseph when he's in Canaan. God dwelled with Joseph in a pagan land, even in slavery in a pagan land. Look at Acts 7.17. But at that, at the, at, excuse me, as the time of promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. Here's God with Israel while in slavery in a pagan land. They are increasing and multiplying. By the way, that is the blessing from Genesis 1.28, isn't it? And God blessed Adam and Eve and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And we pick that up in Exodus chapter 1. And Stephen is citing Exodus 1 and saying, listen, the blessing of God is upon Israel, even in slavery in Egypt, because they are being fruitful and multiplying. So he says, the time drew near, promise drew near, which God granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. Now look down at verse 20. At this time, Moses was born. They're in slavery, and Moses was born. And what does it say about him? And he was beautiful in God's sight. This indication that somehow this Moses is the Savior being sent for them. God is dwelling with them in Egypt. Look at verse 29. At this retort, Moses fled. In other words, one of the men said to him, um, to Moses, that didn't you kill that Egyptian? Moses fled after that and became an exile where? In the land of Midian. Is he in Canaan, in the Holy Land? No, he's in Midian, where he became the father of two sons. And what happens there? Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and, at, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord, I am the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared, dare, did not dare look. God is with Moses in Midian and in the wilderness of Sinai. Not just in the promised land. Not just in Canaan. God is with Abraham in Mesopotamia. God is with Joseph in slavery in Egypt. God is with Israel in slavery in Egypt. God is with Moses in Midian, in the wilderness. Look at verse 34. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning and I have come down to deliver them And now, come, I will send you to Egypt. In other words, Moses, I'm with my people. I'm hearing their groaning in Egypt. I'm not just with them when they're in Canaan or in the temple. Now look at verse 36. This man, that Moses, led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. He's with Israel in slavery in a pagan land, in the Exodus, and in the wilderness wanderings. All before they're in Canaan. Now look at verse 46. He's talking about um, David. So it was at the end of verse 45, until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob, but it was Solomon who built a house for him. It says God was with Israel in the temple. And it actually runs through Joshua all the way through David. It goes Joshua all the way through David and Solomon. That God dwelt with them in the tabernacle in the temple. Though he could never be properly confined to a temple is what Stephen's about to go off and say there. In other words, what Stephen is telling them again and again is if you thought God could properly be confined 
to this temple or tabernacle, if you didn't recognize that God dwelt with us in all sorts of places, not just in Jerusalem, but he dwelt with his people wherever he is, and he did that because he, wherever they are too, because he made a promise to Abraham that he would. And so he did. If you're missing that, then you're the ones who are being disobedient. You're the ones really who are blaspheming Moses and Yahweh because you're saying he can be confined to a temple made with human hands. And he's the God of all creation. And when he promises to be with people, he's with them wherever they are. Now let's look at how Stephen charges Israel with consistent disobedience to God's law. He doesn't just say, you misunderstood the temple. He then says, you're the ones who blaspheme Moses' law. Look at Acts 7 and verse 9. Again, this is probably obvious to you right off. And the patriarchs, that's the 12 sons of Jacob. God has made this promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold them into slavery. In other words, Stephen launches early on saying, God made these promises to us. He was faithful to us. And what did Israel do? What did our people do? We sold our own brother into slavery, though he was innocent. We were disobedient to God's law. You understand, you don't have to have the Ten Commandments written on stone in front of you to know that you're not allowed to sell your brother into slavery. Right? They were disobedient their sinful act against Joseph. Look at verse 23. When he, that being Moses, was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. Remember, he's raised in Pharaoh's palace, if you will, Pharaoh's family. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. Now, what's Moses' thought process at this point? He supposed that his brothers, that being the Israelites, would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wrongdoing his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? Listen, who made them a ruler and Moses a ruler and judge over them? God did. And they rejected him as a ruler and judge over them. How do I know that God made him a ruler and judge? Look at verse 35 of the same chapter. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. See, they sinfully rejected Moses. And not only they sinfully reject Joseph and Moses, they sinfully reject Moses' law. Look at verse 39. Verse 39, our fathers, here's Stephen saying, our fathers refused to obey him. That's Moses. Hear that? They refused to do what? Obey Moses. But thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. It's an interesting way to describe what they do with the worship of the golden calf, turning to Egypt. They turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. 
As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what was become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works, now notice this, of their hands. They sinfully rejected the Mosaic law. They sinfully rejected Moses. They sinfully sold their brother Joseph into slavery. They sinfully confined and tamed God to a building. Look at verse 48. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? So you can't confine me to a building. You can't tame Yahweh to a building, is what he's saying. And then he says, you've, you've always disobeyed and killed the prophets including the Messiah. So Stephen's argument, if it hasn't gone far enough, you rejected Joseph and sold him into slavery, you rejected Moses, you rejected Moses' law, and you confined Yahweh to a building that you made. And then what does he say? Stephen goes on to clinch the deal, to make sure that the rocks were big and heavy that they were going to throw. Look at verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. In other words, your heart and your ears are unclean. They're rebellious. They're unregenerate. You're not born again. You're spiritually dead. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? You can imagine he starts listing Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel. Which of your fathers, did the, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. They killed the prophets who announced the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah, Jesus, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You betrayed and murdered him. All the prophets of the Old Testament pointed to him. You disobeyed and persecuted and murdered them all. And when he came, you murdered him too. As your fathers did, so also do you. You always resist the Holy Spirit. You're stiff-necked, hard-hearted. You're uncircumcised in your ears. You're spiritually dead and rebellious. I'm not the one blaspheming Yahweh, nor his temple, nor his law. You are the blasphemers, and you always have been. You who receive the law, as delivered by angels, and did not keep it. And the people responded, well, finally, you've clarified things for us, Stephen. We were misunderstanding you. Thank you. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they gnashed, ground their teeth at him. And then they, look at verse 57, but they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. 
Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. So, so here's what I want you to gather as we enter this series of sermons. Stephen is not denying Moses, nor is he denigrating the temple. Stephen is saying Moses played an important temporary role in the life of Israel. Stephen is saying that the temple also played an important temporary role in the life of Israel. And Stephen is saying that Israel was so hard-hearted, so stiff-necked, so full of pride and rebellion that they failed to see the truth, and thus they killed the one to whom all that pointed. They had the shadows, and they mistook the shadows for the substance. The Messiah, Christ, Jesus, is the substance. He is the one in whom God dwells, and he is the one who fulfills the law. That's why John says what he says, and I want you to look at John 1 with me in his prologue, which I'd encourage you to read over this Christmas for sure. Look at verse 1 of John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now there was a man, speaking of John the Baptist, sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the life, the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, that's Israel, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the Word, Jesus, the Son, became flesh and dwelt, tabernacled literally in the Greek, among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth that's picking up from Exodus 33 and 34. Full of mercy, loving kindness, faithfulness. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus, the Messiah. No one has ever seen God, the only God, that's the Messiah, who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. See, here's the question for you. Are you looking to Jesus? Do you know that he is the one who kept the precept, that's the command, and the penalty, that's what's due to you for violating those precepts for you? 
He kept the precept and the penalty of God's law for you. Do you know that he is the one in whom God dwells? And that it is only in him and through him that you can approach the Father. Are you trusting in him? Or, in some way, are you trusting in what your own hands can do? Are you looking to him to be saved, or are you looking to your own goodness? Beloved, as we move into the Christmas season and celebrate the first advent of Christ, we're going to look at Jesus, Emmanuel. By the way, what does that word mean? God with us. The one who dwells with us. We're going to see him who is God dwelling with us. The one through whom grace and truth came. The name above all names. The only name under heaven by which men must be saved. And we're going to consider that as we walk through these stories of the Old Testament and Stephen's sermon together. Let me pray. Father, we ask that your name would be magnified, that the name of your Son would be known, that we would understand these Old Testament stories as you worked with your people, Israel, pointed forward to Jesus, the true Israel, the true temple, the fulfillment of the law, the one whom all the shadows and types, the one to whom they pointed the one who was before Abraham or Moses or John the Baptist, the one who is the Word of God through whom all things were created, your own Son who became flesh and dwelt among us, who lived our lives, lived them perfectly in our place without stain or blemish or sin of any sort who was tempted in every way, yet without sin, who paid the penalty due to us on the cross, experiencing the wrath of God against our sin, in our place, condemned he stood, and who rose from the dead, being vindicated before all creation as the one who is holy, who is righteous, the Messiah, who's ascended to your right hand, where he rules and reigns, and from whence he has sent his Spirit to give us life, to circumcise our uncircumcised ears and hearts, to make us clean, give us new birth, to unite us to your Son through faith, so that we might know in him grace upon grace, something we certainly do not deserve, but have, because in your Son is the fullness of grace and, grace and truth. We give thanks for him and pray that we will understand how relentlessly Stephen points to him and how that leads to his death, but to our salvation. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.